<clears throat> all right. Hello, everyone. I'm glad to see all of you here this evening. I want to welcome all of you who are watching remotely. This is a very important lecture tonight, and it's going to be given by Yi Chao, whom I will introduce in just a minute. I want to thank our sponsors, Gazette Newspapers and the Marriott uh, Courtyard downtown. <clears throat> Come on in. <clears throat> Yi Chao is quite a remarkable guy. He's the founder and the CEO of C-Trek, which is a spin-off technology startup from California Institute of Technology. And it has a goal of providing clean, unlimited energy to power underwater drones for ocean exploration. The single limiting factor, biggest limiting factor of ocean exploration is battery life. And um, as you know, this aquarium has been involved in ocean exploration since 2013. We held the first national forum on ocean exploration ever in the United States, and we've participated in all of ones since then. And Yi Chao has his PhD from Princeton, and he was at NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory for over 20 years, did a number of important projects there related to the ocean sciences, and he, he left there to start this new company, which removes the limit of battery life, and it essentially provides unlimited energy. And just think of what that can do for ocean exploration. It's a great, great story. It's a story that we want to tell somehow here at the aquarium because we think it is so important. And we're going to be working with him on telling that story. It has great implications for ocean exploration, for monitoring offshore aquaculture operations, virtually anything where you're going to use drones or, or other submersible devices to figure out the, the what's happening in the ocean. So please join me in welcoming Yi Chao to the aquarium. Thank you, Jerry, for the kind introduction. Thank you for coming. Um, let's see. Oops. Um, it's my pleasure to, to be back uh, as a father of two boys and I used to come here and during the daytime. So it's first time to come in for the evening. Uh, it's uh, remarkable to see the facility and how it's, uh, it's changing over the last decade or so. Both my boys are graduated from college, so I didn't come here for the last uh, many years, so it's great to see the new exhibit and changes. Um, as I um, uh, see my two boys growing, I've been reading all the books about Curious George, right? So uh, human are, in general, very curious. Uh, we are driven to explore the unknowns and to discover new worlds, right? So that's kind of driving my curiosity to be an oceanographer and then to study um, uh, the Earth from space. This year, as we celebrate our 50-year anniversary land human on the moon, and there's a new race into space. Both US Space Agency, NASA, and many other countries try to go back to the moon. And then eventually, we send people to Mars. And as I counting recently, there are almost more than 50 companies, startup companies in the last decades, and try to develop the technology required to deliver uh, cargo, send robots to the moon, and eventually to Mars. And ranging from a number of different um, uh, launching vehicles to big data, and not only understanding, and then try to, um, uh, to send people to the moon and then to a space travel to Mars someday. And I heard the ticket is for sale uh, already. <laughs> so you can reserve your ticket and then ticket going down every decade. Um, I'm lucky to work with many of the rocket scientists and my peers, 5,000 employees in Jet Propulsion Lab, a lot of colleagues being a rocket scientist to uh, develop the robots sent to the Mars. And I have the opportunity to work with them to uh, study Earth from space. There's a, a number of different satellites. This is uh, just a, a, a summary list of the different satellites we launched over the years. Study uh, at atmosphere on Earth, solid Earth, monitor earthquake, monitor clouds, 
measure the rain, and then study the ocean from temperature, sea level, uh, productivity, ocean winds. And then most recently, um, before I left GAPL, I spent 10 years to launch a satellite to measure salinity from space. So you can monitor the salt concentration at the sea surface from hundreds of miles in space. That's another conversation, so afterwards I'll be happy to chat with you how to measure salinity from space. So there's, it turned out there's such a technology breakthroughs and then as a curiosity driven scientist, on land there's not much left to see, right? So if I go to the, open my computer, I can watch the Aquarium of the Pacific, almost every angle I can rotate, except I, you know, I can see every corner. I, you know, if you go out for land, a cup of coffee, and if the satellite fly by, where I see you. So there's very little secret left on land. So where next to explore, right? So ocean is obviously the next frontier. It's the last frontier on Earth. And uh, you probably heard the saying, we know more about surface of the moon, surface of Mars, than the Earth. So both the moon and the Mars surface is 100% mapped. So we sent a lot of satellites to map the surface. I'll just give you the magnitudes of the moon. We mapped to the resolution of 10 meters. So that's how we can land the, rock, the, the vehicle on the moon. And then on Mars, it's 20 meters. So I give you a relative number on the, on the, on the Earth, on the seafloor. We only mapped 5% of the ocean up to today. And then to give you a, a spatial scale, that's translate on average 5,000 meter resolution. So if I take the right-hand panel showing an area in the Southern Ocean between New, New Zealand, Australia, if I drop in the map of the USA, there will be big part of the ocean like Wyoming never been mapped before. So imagine that's one pixel in the seafloor we know. So just to give you an idea how poorly we know as ocean. Not only the seafloor we don't know, there's a lot of uh, property of the water we don't know either. The most recent cases of the Hurricane Doreen and the, the intensification the, over a short period of time is poorly predicted, partly because we know very little about how, warm water, how deep the warm water will penetrate. So we can, see the temp we can measure the temperature from space, surface temperature, but we don't really know how deep that warm water will be. That's provide the feel of the intensification of the hurricanes. And then we are, you can imagine over a million people being re, uh, evacuated. And then you can imagine every kilometer you improve your forecast and how much you translate to savings. The entire damage is over um, $7.5 billion. That's more than the budget of annual budget of the National Ocean Atmospheric Administration. 50% of the NASA's budget of the damage of one single hurricane. Another example uh, you can think about, if I drop something in the water, the chance is you are not find it, right? So just because we have very limited access, it's just difficult. So you can see this is particular operation. US sent one big ships, one big ro robots, try to look for this black box over 30 days. And then you can imagine what well, those little blue areas, they can search little foot stamp size area per day and then try to map in the entire Indian Ocean. It's almost impossible to search unless you know where it is located. So just to give you an idea how much um, we know about our own ocean on Earth. So with that as a background, the UN have decided the next decade will be the decade of the ocean. So if you're not aware, starting 2021 for the next decade. And we want to work with the international community uh, to focus on sustainable development, to have a clean ocean, right? And then we want to have a healthy, resilient ocean. We want to have a predicted ocean so we can make better decisions. And we want to be a safe ocean to support navigation, transportation. We want a sus sustainable and a productive ocean so we can have enough proteins and food in the future to support ocean farming and then provide the, the, the food for the increasing population. And then we want to make ocean transparent. Think about it. Ocean is opaque most of the time. We cannot see through the seafloor. Um, 
and that it, most of the time is not accessible. So those are the guiding principles over the next decades um, uh, the, the international community will work towards. Ocean is difficult to access. We know that 150 years ago since the first expedition. This is a famous um, Challenger expedition in uh, 150 years ago using a number of ships sailing around the globe to collect data, to, uh, to, to map the seafloor, to, to find out new species. And you can see it's a very long operation over almost two year period. And because of the technology back then, it, a lot of people cannot return. Just be, it's a hard job to go away from land to collect this information, follow the trajectories, and then go around the globe. And turned out 150 years later, we use similar technology to access ocean, except the ship is modern, it's safe, relatively safe. And this is an international program, try to map the ocean for the first time. And I have dozens of big ships involved. You can see the, the, the huge vessel take 20, 30 scientists at a given time. And you can almost write a poem when a calm day, you see the beautiful scenery and scientists working in the deck and collecting data. And then most of the time is right hand side and it's hard work, right? So big wind, big waves. And ship is expensive to operate. So typically cost, let's pick a round number, $100,000 a day for a big ship for 20 people to work on board. You can lower this instrument down to the seafloor maybe four times a day. Let's translate for every data point you're collecting. It's a huge amount of resources being costed at sea. So if you believe someday you're going to receive the delivery from um, Google and then your FedEx arrive in your back door, a robotic revolution is coming to our door. It's coming, um, gonna, gonna have uh, uh, drones take pictures in your backyard and it's gonna revolutionize the way we deliver and understand the earth we live in. And we wanna take advantage uh, to this revolution. Uh, ocean robotic is, is coming as well. There's two types of robots under the water. You can power them through a cable from the deck of the ship, and then you can turn on your diesel engine and then provide a fiber optic cable. So you can run your, we call ROVs, remote operated vehicles. You can take pictures and take videos and collect environmental data sets. Or you can make the robots autonomous, saying, I don't have a tether, let's swim outside for 10, 20 miles. And that's the vehicle used to search the black box for the MH370. Um, there's a problem because after how many hours the battery will die. And then you have to take the big machine back to the deck and you have to plug in the diesel generator as well. So regardless which type of robot is a tethered vehicle, autonomous vehicle, charging batteries at sea is a very expensive operation. It's just not scalable. And scientists getting smarter, engineers and smart engineers, and start to develop more and more autonomous systems so we can get rid of the ship, so we can let the robots to, to work on themselves. Uh, this is one of the simplest type of robots in the last 20 years in the community have developed. It's a vertical takeoff vehicle. Think about a hot air balloon. And here you can see you can have a pump to change in the volume of the oil bladder. And then by changing the volume, you can change the buoyancy of the device, and they can move up and down, just like the hot air balloons. And you can drop from the ship, you can drop from the plane, and they're fully autonomous. You can tell the robot how deep it go, and then do A, B, C, and come back and talk to satellites, and then go back to do the work again. It's a remarkable machine, and then the community has deployed thousands of these. It's one use case study, try to monitor ocean temperature using these robots and then UN required take about 4,000 data point for the global ocean to monitor how quickly and how deep the temperature is warming in response to climate change. But there's a problem. We, we reached the goal of 4,000. There's a lot of uh, green dots here. Oh, the green dots showing that the robots still reporting data every time it comes to the surface. And at the same time, you see a lot of red dots at the same time. And what are those right dots? And they are dead robots, right? So after a certain amount of time, the battery dies, the robot dies with it because it costs more money to go out to retrieve them, to charge them on the ship. 
So typically of these robots cost about maybe $50,000 plus minus uh, 50%. And to recover, to replace them, um, recharge them on the debacle ship costs even more. So typically it's considered as a disposable, disposable device. So not only financially is costly, it's not sustainable, uh, environmentally is impossible to imagine as we scale up into ocean exploration, into many other use cases. This was a single use case. I put a simple uh, mathematics there. Uh, typical one of the robots take about 6,000 kilojoules of energy. That's a measure of energy, kilojoules. And then just give you a reference, a, a typical car battery about 3,000 kilojoules. It can, can charge your car and then run for a while. And AAA battery is about three kilojoules. So basically each one of these robots carry two car batteries. Or you can imagine a thousand of these dead every year on the order. So you can think about 2,000 of these car batteries basically we throw in, in the ocean. Or you can say we have recycled AAA batteries or be two million of these batteries being thrown away every year. Just to monitor one particular study. Clearly it's not sustainable. Um, there's more sophisticated robots people are being built. Um, this is a, what we call underwater gliders, and they have a, a wing on the, each side. As the robot's going up and down, they can translate the vertical motion into a horizontal uh, propulsion. They can uh, pitch roll and let the glider to go certain directions, just like you uh, do the air glider. In the same way uh, you glide in the ocean, you can carry sensors to detect marine mammals. You can hear submarines. You can uh, measure environmental parameters, water qualities, and then very quickly you will realize this smart machine is also need powered by batteries and then you can see changing battery is also a very challenging operation. You not only need big ships to find the robots in the middle of the ocean, you need to lower your small boats and then people go there and then recharge battery, re replace, re swap a battery and let them go for another mission. Even though the machine cost a quarter million dollars each. I visited one of the sponsors. So the robots spend more time in the warehouse than in the boats. This is the US Navy, the biggest customer of this particular machine. And they don't have enough ships to um, recharge the battery, even for biggest customer of the Navy. So, um, so about 10 years ago, the community started asking, how do you power these drones? We see this drone revolution is coming. We see going to be thousands, if not millions of robots in the future, in the next few decades. How do you power them? You know, clearly battery, throwaway battery is not a sustainable solution. People try to develop a fiber optic cables and then so we can have a plug extension cord on the sea, right? So people have done it. National Science Foundation spent the biggest amount of funding in oceanography, lay about 200 miles of cable off the coast of Oregon, Washington and try to extend the, pour, the power plug in your room into the seafloor. So you can imagine laying fiber optic cables in the sea, uh, need a special ships. Uh, they sell by inches, uh, extremely expensive. Um, it's very powerful to bring the power plug into the sea in the middle of the ocean, but it's one of the decades opportunity. You can do a demonstration. You can charge your drones. You can power your sensors. You can monitor earthquake in real time and try to have early warning system for the tsunamis if there's an earthquake. And it's a very good case study if you can do this in a localized area. It's not a global solution. Uh, people have uh, uh, using the well-known source of it, renewable energy from solar energy, from wind energy. There's startup companies. Uh, being established in the Silicon Valley in the last decade, the well-known liquid robotic using solar panels on the top and the wave energy propels. You have almost like a wind shutter. You have when the wave coming up and down, you start to generate the force, propel the vehicles to move horizontally. It's extremely useful surface drones to collect air-sea um, uh, information at the ocean surface. That's being acquired by Boeing a few years ago. Uh, sail drones is using wind energy to have these surface drones and then going much faster and then propelled by the wind. You can put the solar panels on the side and the power your sensors. 
a successful company and then just closed a Series B round uh, last year of $60 million. So he's emerging, have this race to have drones at the surface powered by both the solar, wind, and the wave energy. And as we go dive deeper, and then it's really none of these form of energy is available. So as the deeper you go, the darker it becomes. And there's just not many source of renewable source of energy available. So that's where we come in. We started a little bit over 10 years ago getting into underwater robotic and renewable energy, looking into a different form of energy, try to find a source to power them. Um, so with working at GAPL, the advantage have 3,000 engineers. You can pick up the phone and get the smartest rocket scientists and rocket engineers say who can do this, right? Put a team together. So we find an innovative solution to harvest energy from the thermal temperature difference in the ocean. As you know, the ocean is warm at the surface. As you dive into the deep ocean a few hundred meters, and then you'll become five degrees C or even less. So you have this 10 degrees C or 18 degrees Fahrenheit um, majority of part of the ocean, you have this energy. So the way we generate energy is like a steam engine. You use some kind of working materials. Uh, steam engine use, use uh, water to boil 100 degrees C temperature difference. You can boil into vapor, vapor spin the turbine, generate electricity. Similarly, the, our innovation here is how to turn a much smaller temperature difference into electricity. In this case, about 10 degrees C or 18 degrees Fahrenheit. For small energy production, we can use solid to liquid transition. We find a material, they, they are in a solid material, like a wax material in the deep ocean. When it comes to the surface, they can melt into a liquid. Give you about 10, 15% expansion. That's turn the thermal energy into a mechanical expansion. They can turn the turbine, generate electricity. For bigger energy production, we we'll use liquid to gas, and then we can circulate our mater liquid materials and then vaporize them, just like a steam engine, except we can vaporize them in a 10 degree C uh, environment. Uh, so the schematic on the right-hand side just show you how this thermal energy being translated into a mechanical expansion, and that's expansion where generate a hydraulic pressure and then turn the turbine generate electricity. You can save into the storage and then you can use for future use. So we developed the technology at the GAPL. We left GAPL to commercialize them and try to take this um, innovative technology to a commercial application. So we can power a number of different vehicles and then solve the energy problem as Jerry pointed out early on. There's a lot of ocean exploration limited by power. So power is the top most challenging problems uh, prevent us to scale the global uh, exploration. What I mentioned earlier, the vertical uh, diving uh, machines called the floats. Um, basically, we can attach to one of our systems on the right-hand side um, to provide 100% uh, power for their operation. So typically, you can imagine is um, a machine costs $50,000. Uh, you can make about 300 dives using the batteries I described earlier um, because we attach, uh, we generate energy in the water so we can provide energy directly local in the local site. Uh, you can imagine we even double the cost. We can provide essentially unlimited or at least order magnitude more uh, capability. Uh, so that's where uh, we start our commercial sales uh, this year. It took us quite a number of years to uh, to take the research prototype to a commercial uh, product. Um, Jerry asked me, uh, what are the challenges? And then I said, the challenge is to take the research to a commercial uh, is, is to produce, it's the first product from zero to one, and then taking to the customers, and then have a willing paying customers to, to help what they, can, uh, what they are doing, or they cannot accomplish something in the past. So, um, so that's something already uh, commercially in sale this year. And our goal is to replace this uh, a network of floats. Uh, as I mentioned, there are 4,000 of these uh, in the water performing a particular task. And they, um, I, I did a little snapshot yesterday. is is slightly over uh, less than the 4,000 of these, 3,600 of them still reporting data on a routine basis. And that's 
the information we need to uh, provide to the hurricane forecasting models to improve the understanding of the ocean so we can improve our forecast of the intensification of the hurricanes. Uh, forget about the European models and the U.S. models, so I did put a line there. And then the European model in red and the U.S. model in blue. And for some reason, either they have better computer or some other thing they did right. They are doing better forecasts of the hurricanes. Yeah, we, we got <laughs> that's, a, that's another story. So, um, so this is our goal number one is to uh, at least we try to eliminate um, um, the, the, the battery disposal at sea. At the same time, we can help scientists to collect data at older magnitude, less cost, so we can improve the information content we are providing. Another uh, new initiative in the internationally try to call out uh, a thousand of these uh, devices should carry uh, chemical, biological sensors to measure the ocean health, to try to help us to monitor how the ocean is changing in response to the climate change. Uh, what I've shown here in the graph is a data set from Hawaii Station uh, show you how um, the temperature and atmospheric CO2 are going up in, the, in that particular site represent the global uh, climate change. And at the same time, as you increase the CO2 in the atmosphere, it's more absorbed in the ocean, you start to see a systematic decrease of the pH in the seawater. So that's have a fundamental impact to the ecosystem, uh, the, the species we in the water. So that's need to be monitored on the global scale rather than a single station. So we're calling a thousand of these um, robots need to carry biological, chemical, sensors particularly measure the pH, dissolved oxygen or nitrate and the many other sensors, chlorophyll uh, productivity uh, measurements. Um, so that itself also uh, call in uh, increased uh, power supply and then we are sustaining um, a program which is we can, are not doing, um, not possible before at a certain cost. When the battery dies, a $100,000 machine will die with it, right? So now we uh, dramatically reduced uh, cost to collect the, the, the data from the ocean. Um, the, the underwater glider I mentioned earlier, um, still powered by batteries today. And there was an effort uh, a couple years ago tried to cross Atlantic at one point. Uh, we have a challenge from uh, Eric when the Schmidt Foundation to uh, be the first glider to cross the Pacific. So that's the goal we are trying to aiming towards to launch from LA, eventually or ended up in Tokyo and Hong Kong. And then uh, we did want to go around Hawaii for, for a circle in case something goes wrong. That could be an easy uh, recovery and a deployment place. Um, so typically a battery costs about $20,000. They can last for a month or two. Depends on how many sensors you carry on board. Uh, we envisioning um, our energy harvesting system, uh, you will break even after you replace two or three times uh, of the battery. Uh, we anticipate to release this in the first quarter next year and to help not only researchers and then uh, different customers to, uh, to, to access the ocean in the long term. Uh, looking a little bit down the road, we are in the R&D phase to develop uh, next generation systems, power systems. Uh, in this case, we anticipate to have a permanent uh, energy power station. We are generating energy using a slightly different liquid to gas phase transition. So we can cycle our working fluid in the water column so we can have a continuous power production. Hundreds of watts continuous power and we can store them into a storage, we can power um, a different size of the propeller vehicles. The smaller one take about one kilowatt hours per charge. The bigger one may take 10, uh, lower tens and kilowatt hours. And then we anticipate to install a network of these charging stations in the, on the order of a million dollars each. And we start to s sell electricity for those people who cannot afford um, the charging station. So we can sell on the order of $1,000 per kilowatt hours and then to uh, provide elect unlimited electricity for these underwater operations. So imagine you can optimize the network of the, of the charging stations, just like you see more gas stations in the neighborhood we are. You're driving out of LA, you, the next gas, gas station will be 50 miles, right? 
So it's proportional to the vehicles that you're supporting to. Um, last year alone, there's over $2 billion of propeller AUVs being sold. So there are thousands of these vehicles in the community need to be powered. So that's the goal we tried to envision a few years ago. We did a little study at Caltech, tried to develop um, a methodology to really to un look at the ocean from satellite in space all the way to the seafloor to un truly understand um, the ocean in a transparent way. And then combining autonomy with ocean sciences and then to make breakthrough in a number of areas and to really taking the information we are collecting in the ocean to help us to make better decisions. So in, in other words, you can complete the loop from uh, sensing, having a sensor in the, in the robots to collect the data, to ingest into your knowledge models, and then to produce information and to help you to make better decisions. And that decision has helped you to accomplish goals and objectives and then either to collect information or monitor the health of the ocean farms uh, and try to answer the question how many sense drones you need to deploy in the next cycle. So by going through these loops, you improve your information content, you can make better decisions. So the first round you can say I need five robots to collect ABC data to help me to make these decisions and then tomorrow you are say I need to improve another 20% of this forecast and then to better understand the water quality to inform my farm. And then you need maybe five more robots at a particular location. So by iterating this, and then you can improve um, your understanding and then is make the ocean is a predictable ocean. Similar to the weather forecasting, when we ever go out to open your phone, you, you want to check the weather prediction, right? So before you travel, what, what kind of... Uh, uh, luggage you're going to bring, and then um, how many clothes you're going to bring. So we, there are a couple of uh, future science uh, directions we want to do. Uh, we believe we provide the power to the drones. We can uh, implement a number of different drones underwater so we can start to pinpoint exactly where you are underwater. So in, in, it's like underwater GPS. We can, we, can, we can follow the Uber drivers around everywhere. And today we cannot follow anything go below the surface. You can track them on the surface with satellites. Once you're below the surface, it depends on your best guess, right? So I think with uh, our persistent power system, so we can provide uh, the, the information using acoustic, for example, is to pinpoint and triangulate um, not only the, the drones we are sending to, but also we can listen. And there's a lot of sound in the ocean. Um, ranging from the natural sound from the marine animals and to man-made sound, a noise, if you want to call, from container ships and, or you want to hear your animal, enemy submarines. Um, or you want to protect your, you, the certain species and you want to minimize the noise and then you want to minimize the collision, for example. Uh, so you want to protect those uh, marine species as well. So better understand sound in the ocean and then try to position them, uh, try to inform us uh, to protect the ocean we live in. Um, another potential uh, example uh, we, we can do is to provide a network of uh, powered drones and try to pick uh, particular species you can monitor. This is a use case a colleague uh, has been, um, a number of colleagues have been um, conducting research like including NOAA and then to understand the population of the whale, right whales, and then both in the North Atlantic and North Pacific. Uh, it's, it's amazing, um, North Pacific, and then according to the best knowledge um, from NOAA, and there are probably less than 40 uh, left. So it's challenging to, uh, 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 to maintain and, and grow that population. I think North Atlantic still have a few hundred of them left, and then if we do better, monitoring, um, there's, there's good hope we can minim minimize the collision, uh, the deaths, and that we can make the population go up um, to save, uh, prevent and in, in extinct from our, our ocean. Um, so, the, so our power system certainly provide the backbone for uh, the drones and then carry the, the hydrophones so you can, you can detect them, you can tag those whales and try to uh, understand their 
behavior, their migration, and their habitat, and, um, and, and their, 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 their population as well. Um, so go back to um, coming back to home here. Um, is, is amazing to see these amazing facilities and then to, uh, you, you bring these animals for us to see, you hear, you touch them, you interact with them. And looking into the coming decades, um, you know, we are in the, in the critical moment to, uh, to bring a number of different technologies to, uh, uh, to take advantage of the robotic revolution and then to bring you to the ocean. Those are the information you, know, you can see uh, become a really a truly transparent and a predicted ocean. So we can take uh, you into the, the environment uh, that you otherwise cannot, it's difficult to access. Um, in terms of the, the journey from a research scientist to um, uh, entrepreneur, have a startup companies, is all saying it take a village to raise a child, right? So this is, uh, um, a sea track and the passion about to grow in the coming decades and then I thank to uh, uh, GAPL and Caltech allow us to license the technology to commercialize for uh, for applications uh, as I mentioned from research to uh, a number of different other applications like farming, underwater communication, defense security, oil gas industry all the way to, um, to, to ocean uh, transportation and navigation. A number of um, institutions help us along the way. I want to acknowledge um, uh, early on, uh, Teal Foundations, I have a breakout lab in San Francisco. They become the first institution supporting the company and then from zero to one technology. Uh, later on, uh, Eric with the Schmidt Foundation uh, through their marine technology partners also supporting our glider project. Um, we are fortunate to receive the, the small business uh, funding from the government, all of you through the tax dollars supporting us. So in other words, you are all our supporters. So 3% of the president's discretionary funding go to the Small Business Innovative Research Program, SBIR. So that's support company with 500 people or less considered a small business. So we are fortunate to have uh, SBR funding to support on R&D uh, going through uh, Department of Defense, um, through the U U.S. Navy Office of Naval Research, as well as National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration. Um, a number of um, worth mentioning uh, as well, um, my two boys has been really supportive to be curious to uh, become oceanographer to discover new new things. Uh, my wife certainly um, has been really supportive without the family support and you know support your salary, give you medical insurance to start a company is, is a key. Uh, first few years has been really uh, lucky to have a number of friends. Uh, when you um, I think the textbook company. Uh, uh, a guidance saying start up a company, you raise money from your friend and family first. So that's uh, a number of uh, people on maybe online and uh, watching. Thank you for the support. Uh, starting this year, we are getting support from uh, uh, investors from different local groups. Pasadena Angels uh, has been uh, leading um, this year's uh, fundraising for us. Uh, there's 22 members uh, out of the Pasadena Angels supporting us this year. Uh, Tech Coast Angels as well, LA and Orange County chapters. And then recently we become a portfolio company of Lacey, LA Clean Tech Incubator. And then we also received their uh, funding from their impact funds this year. Um, the final person I wanna thank is uh, my mentor at Lacey, uh, Bob Musselman. Um, uh, being a, a CEO of the founder is uh, challenging from day to day, weekly basis. I appreciate the mentor at Lacey every week being my therapist and then listen to my up and downs and provide guidance and otherwise. So I stop here and take your questions. This is a great story. So, you, you mentioned the difference in resolution of our mapping of the moon, mm -hmm. Mars, and the ocean. And you did mention that, but I want you to reinforce one of the big differences. Space and, and the atmosphere, they're transparent to light. The Correct. ocean is opaque to light. So we can't, we have to have, that's why we need to use sound. That's correct. And, and I think 
you know, there, there's a rumor in Washington these days is that later, uh, early next month, that there will be an announcement by the president. I'm in a little trouble right now. Uh, but that he's going to announce a $2 billion initiative to map the U.S. exclusive economic zone to the highest resolution possible. Right. Be multi mm -hmm. And uh, if that happens, that would be really fabulous because, you know, the more of the United States is underwater than it's exposed, mm -hmm. it's rich in resources. And um, do you, have you heard this rumor that it's going to be CEQ and the Office of Science Technology Policy will make this announcement? That's a great news. I think California is always leading the nation, right? So California, a few years ago, invested about 200, more than $200 million to map our own coast. And they take a few of these vessels, the multi-beam, um, by multi-beam is looking uh, a side of the ships and then they can create a wide SWAT coverage. So it's readily efficient, it's very power hungry, and then it can sweep in through the coast. Take about a couple of years to map the entire California coast. It's a pretty high resolution. Um, I think it's great to have the nation to, uh, uh, to have that kind of mapping capability. And there's a number of different other technology. You know, you can have a single beam that's called echo sounder. In other words, you can send a ping to the seafloor by listening to the return, measure the time. You can measure the, the seafloor that way by knowing the sea level. So that way you can measure on every robot in the future, I will advocate if energy is not a, a, pro, a limitation, you should carry this sensor to provide the data to map the seafloor. So we were definitely want to do better than 5% as we move along the next decades. Interesting that uh, one of the things that we one of the things we, we learn is the variability and the complexity of the ocean by having more data. And as we're changing the temperature and the chemistry, we're putting a lot of sea life at risk. Correct. And and yet as some one of your slides shows, there probably are areas that could be refugia for species because the pH isn't changing as much, the temper's not temperature's not changing as much. We need to find those areas and, exactly. to, and to protect them. Right. We need to monitor on the global scale as well. There's a few stations. <coughs> we have been monitoring them regularly, and, and there's a few time series and on the fixed site. Uh, there's, there's certain anchored moorings and the stations we're doing those measurements. But as you know, it, the sea level changing differently in one state and they have different sea level rise than in another state. Same thing for the pH. So you need to monitor on the global scale on every part of the globe. Who, right, who has a question? Let me bring you a microphone for, so the people who are watching online can hear. Thank you. Thanks for a great talk. Um, what do you find is sort of the most politically motivating argument that you can use, you know, when people are getting into this? I see that they're sort of building, what's the word I'm looking for here? Building momentum around this, but what is working as a driver here in the U.S. and sort of globally? It, it certainly is an international effort. As you know, the U.N. recognized and then they, they, they declare the decade of the ocean is this awareness for not only the developed country or developing country to work together uh, because the, everybody access their own ocean. They take uh, the whole international community to improve what our understanding, our knowledge. And then there's a number of argument we can, um, uh, can make in the ocean provide a number of different key information for the life and death. You know, hurricane prediction is one of them. Uh, in the last 20, 30 years, no matter how fast computer we are building, we have almost no progress forecast intensity. We do better on track prediction. We can see the satellite. We can do the track pretty much better than 20 years ago. But uh, we have no idea why the hurricane intensified within 48 hours from category three to category four or five. So every category, as you know, imply you know, the danger of the population, how many people have to evacuate it. That's just one example. pH, Jerry mentioned, is another good example. A number of these ocean water qualities, and then as we put in more of offshore farming into the ocean, we need to know better ocean conditions, ocean, the health of the, of the water, and to better inform on those farmer indus farming industries and then to provide enough protein to the growing population. So there's a number of different 
not only curiosity-driven science, but also societal, practical, relevant questions we can address. And this, this country was founded as a maritime nation. No, no other, France claims they have a larger EEZ because of some of their territories. But if you look at, we're bounded by the Atlantic, the Gulf of Mexico, the Pacific, and the Arctic, and yet we've isolated ourselves too, too much and uh, we're too preoccupied with building walls. You're going to let us know when you go public, right? Uh, you, everybody funded us through the small business grant, so basically everybody is stakeholder in this game. Okay. okay. Now, uh, since your power is generated by temperature differentials, do your your units your units are attached to current technology drones, right? You, that, that's a portable system I yeah. uh, I mentioned earlier. Our power station will be a standalone system. It's much bigger volume and weight and then we'll be standalone, not attached to the drones. So the drone will come back to get charged once they need power. This is similar to to the how many miles your EV or your car can drive and you have to go to the gas station or charging station. But if you need a temperature change, don't you have to move up and down in the in in the ocean? Yeah in to, the, to create that differential. For the portable you move up and down. For the power station our working fluid is cycles through the water column, through the cold and warm. Okay. So we continue to vaporize our liquid as they cycle through. So we can have a continuous power generation. That's the only way we can reach the kilowatt range rather than a few watts and tens of watts. So in some ways uh, for your technology, global warming is good. It heats the upper, this, it, it, it heats the surface of the ocean more. The, the energy it, we convert is negligible. No, no, so. I understand. But, and so it, it nobody, reduces, the, you, it increases the stability of the water column. Only, only the most accurate sensor can detect <laughs> the difference. So uh, most, you'll touch, you'll touch right, the water, I'll let you, you cannot go. feel the difference. Th thank you very much for all your information. It was um, quite interesting and informing. Um, the drones that lose life, so to speak, that are laying in the bottom of the ocean, mm -hmm. um, I was wondering about the fact they have ultimately on the water in the ocean and the marine life, and does the marine life get affected by the drones? And if so, what effect is having on them, and do sharks maybe take them for food? Now, I think maybe I've asked you a three-phase question was meant to be one, but okay. I have parts to it, so thank you. So let me try to address one at a time. Um, I think these two, most of these drones are too big for the sharks. Um, the only case, the most uh, amusing story I heard is um, one of the gliders get lost for a couple of weeks because they lose communication. Usually they come to the surface and they're reporting the health and then take command to do the next mission. Um, this is the operation, um, uh, suddenly get stalled, no, no, the glider never call home for many weeks. And then eventually, a few weeks later, you'll hear the beep and then it's calling home. And then eventually they get recovered and then you, they, they discover there's all this mark. And it's, it's, I believe the first giant squid tried to hug for a couple of weeks and then eventually abandoned the, the, the gliders. It's, it's just not fun, it's, it may not be tasty at all. So that's kind of one of your questions. The other question about the battery life, um, certainly as we grow the technology and then start beginning of the robotic revolution, uh, we start to realize that more and more batteries put in the ocean potentially can be harmful. Uh, there's no regulation today to, you have to take the battery back after the end of the life, uh, but hopefully that will come as we mature the industry mature the technology and reduce the cost. And there's still a big cost to recover those uh, batteries. Uh, once they get disposed, uh, we only know the last reporting position at the surface. We don't know exactly where they end up. So even though we know where the surface could be many, many miles in a different place. Um, certainly, I can create a video to show you two car batteries and what they look like when they explode. Right, so there's a potential danger if you're really nearby. It's really the question is how scalable and sustainable this particular approach as we scale up. Uh, we have a major conference last week in Hawaii um, every 10 years to plan the next decades. 
And now we're calling for 10 times, 100 times, or even 1,000 times more drones in the ocean to help us to make better decisions. So as we getting into the next decades, clearly this is an issue the community have to address. And then eventually we have to minimize or reduce, um, eliminate uh, harmful chemistry-based uh, batteries. Um, that's, I keep asking that question to many faculties and professors and doing special in the uh, chemical oceanography and chemistry. Uh, certainly that needs to be addressed. It's just the magnitudes, right? So the, how much we're going to put in the ocean. 20 years ago, we think and, you know, plastic in the ocean is not a big problem. The ocean is big oceans. They can take infinite amount of trash, right? So now you see one straw at a time and it make a difference. So I, I think the sooner we understand the impact, that's a great question to understand it and then make action to, uh, uh, to prevent it happening. Next question. Raise your hand, I'll bring you a microphone. Who has one? Somebody must have one. Or is any consideration given to using a radioisotope thermal generator for power? For certain customers, they probably do it already. So that's for mass customer, you know, uh, broader customers. Uh, certainly, that's you know, if, if you it's still a thermal energy generation. If you if you can generate 10,000 degree temperature in the little you know lunchbox, and certainly that's the best source of energy. Uh, certainly, manned vehicles uh, are you know uh, are willing to take that risk. Many of these unmanned vehicles, and then un unless there's special circumstances, I would imagine the, the management of the waste and then the consequence and will be severe enough to prevent a broader uh, uses of that kind of energy. Does that make sense? So when you have unlimited energy, mm -hmm. it's amazing what you, you can do. And there are different kinds of energy that serve different purposes. Mm -hmm. And you have found a niche. Right. Describe that a little bit. Because as we talked over dinner, there isn't any single solution to right. this energy problem. There are, there are a revolution, as I mentioned, on the surface robotic vehicles, unmanned ships, unmanned surfboard, unmanned wind-driven drones. Uh, so there's a number of companies and, you know, um, started in the last decade to take advantage of these different source of renewables. Solar is solar at the surface, solar energy, wind energy, wave energy. They all enable certain type of surface platforms and they can easily to navigate on the surface. They're collecting very important weather information in the air and the near surface information in the ocean. So we are provide we are complementary to those surface drones, and then provide the, the submersible and then uh, uh, deep ocean drones, and then provide a source of energy locally underwater, and also producing platforms and energy harvesting stations underwater is much cheaper than the surface expression. If anybody build any structure um, in the in the in near the surface, you know it's very costly. It's hard to maintain. And then you go 50 meters down, it's really nice and calm. Uh, since you seem to be addressing lots of different parts of the puzzle here, do you see any good upcoming innovations in, say, the total communication path? So let's say you're collecting data down deep mm -hmm. and you have some like total energy cost to get your bits back to a computer on land. Is there anything good coming up in that realm? Uh, can you elaborate your questions more specific? Yeah, there, there are certain uh, certain advantage to uh, to go deeper. And then for example, one example I can give you uh, the vertical drones. And then we designed 2,000 meters. And then we think global warming and warming ocean maybe a few hundred meters, 200 meters is pretty deep, right? So after 20 years of research, we turn we find out there's still ocean heat unaccounted for. So there was a, a period of time we don't really understand where this heat's going. We know how much heat we are getting, and then we, we cannot close the budget, right? 
So it turned out a lot of the leakage of the heat go deeper than 2,000 meters. Now we're designing robots go down to 4,000 meters or even 6,000 meters, try to map the entire ocean. Um, I'm not sure exactly sure. That's but I, I think uh, you have more in, in mind when, when you gather all this data from the ocean, how do you get it back to people? You c so say where when you come to the surface, you mm -hmm. can transmit that to satellites and satellites can get it to your laptop. Mm -hmm. Is that last, yeah, yeah, so the last time I used Iridium, it was really expensive and you could send, you know, 1,600 bytes or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, certainly software, uh, AI, is, uh, machine learning, all these new tools become available or make those data dramatically reduce that data being returned to your laptop or your, your smartphones. Uh, there will be uh, certainly a software revolution as we collect more data. And as we gather more sound, we gather more images and videos, and there's absolutely no way we can send back everything we c we're measuring. So onboard processing, uh, more power, faster computer, powerful software to uh, co compress the data, to even process the data, to send the valuable information rather than raw data. So, so that's tremendously helpful. Uh, satellite communication is still pretty expensive. We have to pay every bit we're sending through satellites like your, your cell phone. You still have a limitation how much data you can send back. Underwater communication, acoustic, we can use acoustic to uh, transmit data, but it requires a very dense network, so it's still not globally available today. Do you really still have to come to the surface? Most of the time, yeah. you come to the surface through satellite. And then dispersed. Correct. Right. Yeah. There, there, there is a regional uh, acoustic network you can communicate and then kind of relay through acoustic data transmission to a certain place. And then it's still you, you either go to shore or you come to satellites. So either one of the route. And you still need the people on shore to translate those data That's into correct. information to make better yeah. decisions. Yeah, you, you need more drones. You need more software engineers to uh, compress those data and process them. In regards to hurricanes and predicting them, how much progress has been made towards that? And once you receive some information, who's the backup people to move forward so it'll be sooner than later that you'll find the information that you need to find? I, as I mentioned, there's a tremendous progress to uh, monitor the path of the, the trajectory of the hurricanes, the track of the hurricanes not only through satellite measurement, but also U.S. have a fleet of aircraft that if you heard on the radios and the TVs and then the hurricane hunters. So they basically fly into the eye of the hurricanes. And remember you heard a story, they, they fly to the place, they cannot find the eye because the hurricane moved 10, 20 miles and away already. So those va very valuable information collect the information inside the hurricanes. What is missing, I, I believe, is uh, this underwater. We, we know the temperature is warm. That's why hurricane happening in these warm, nice places, because it's, that provides a few of the hurricanes. But what we don't know is how deep those warm water were penetrate. So that's the key information to give you the intensification of the hurricane. That's the poorly known quantity. And then if you talk to the National Hurricane Center in the last two or three decades, there's very little progress improving that prediction of the intensification. And that's, I believe, uh, the ocean, um, deep ocean information provide, uh, hold the key to many of those cases. And the administrator of NOAA once said, and, and another big challenge is figuring it out how to convey that information to the public so they will pay attention to it. Uh, and, and that's social science. That's beyond my uh, That's be expertise. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll take one more. Anybody have one? Val. Hi. I want to build on Frances's previous question, her first one, about the dead batteries. I'm not concerned about the dead batteries as I am as the entire mechanism, the float itself. If you've got 4,000 of these and if many, many, many of them die, they go down to the bottom, as I understand what you're saying, and create ocean litter. Mm -hmm. And how is that going to be dealt with? 
Well, certainly, uh, number one, we need to create awareness uh, that's happening, number one. As we, we, we have this revolution in the next decade, we're going to have order magnitude or two order magnitude more drones, right? So the disposal is a major challenge. Now, once you create awareness, you understand what the impact the local uh, ecosystem and then uh, impact the ocean. And then the third question is, how do you either reduce the use of this chemistry-based batteries, or you find a way to recover once they die. Maybe rather than send them to the bottom, to let them float to the surface, and then the next ship coming by, maybe a fisherman can pick it up and then call 1-800 number, give them $1,000. Go, go back to that map that showed all of the, the floats. It, over, just to give you an example, there's even, we, we put in about 1,000 of these. This is for one particular use case. It's one particular project, require 4,000 of these drones working, and they put 1,000 of, of them die per year. So accumulative is tens of thousands already. But the, the, other, I think the, the other point is that if, you, if the size of the dots were scaled to the size of the drone, <laughs> They would, you wouldn't be able to see them probably on, on this map. So it's yeah. not anywhere near as bad as it appears. Yeah. That doesn't Those mean that we shouldn't be worried about it. Yeah. But, but as we go, you know, a million drones, now we have yes, a problem. Right. And, and this is a particular one use case. And then um, that's the last position. We don't really know exactly <coughs> where they end up because ocean or drift shift them away somehow. It's like you, 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 you have a missing airplane. Even though you know the location, your black box could be anywhere within tens of miles. But I think Yi has, is only did you have a question? Yeah, would they be animal habitat? I mean, are they nesting where they don't? Not the chemistry, not eventually the chemistry where, you know, you, you can go to YouTube and find those videos and then what the consequence when they explode. But th this is an important contribution that you're making to ocean exploration and uh, it is a story we want to tell here. That's, that's the challenge is to, you know, mature this technology and then bring the awareness and then to use the clean energy. We have the technology today. We can um, prevent this happening right. in the next decade. So you can bring those right, right back home? Those, those. Or we stop using chemistry batteries and a renewable right. source available. So it's power, power, we measure the sea and then power by the sea. That sounds yeah. better. You went one more. Go ahead. Nice and loud. Um, how deep can those renewable energy, like submersibles, go down? How like how much do they impact on our research? You can. Some of the submersible go as the deepest place. You know, ten kilometers, and and then typically most of the ocean depths on average about four thousand meter deep. So that's kind of on average. Certainly, you have those, you have those trenches going twice as deep or even more. And then some of the exploration, there's um, a few times people can go to the deepest places and then find plastic story, even in the deepest places. Um, so typically for most of the applications, maybe a thousand meters is enough, particularly monitor the health and the productivity, the farming. It's most of the, the activities happening in the upper uh, a thousand meters, even a few hundred meters where you have light, you have you have a marine life, um, abundant life, and then typically those are the most active places in the first thousand meters. Yeah, we want to thank you for a terrific lecture and thank for you everything very much. you're doing. Thank you thank for thank your you. time. And, and our, our next lecture is October 8th. Uh, Lee McIntyre will be here to discuss his new book, The Scientific Attitude. Very important. Uh, you don't have to be a scientist to have a scientific attitude, and not all scientists have a scientific attitude. So I would encourage you to come, because this, this is trying to look into why in this society is science not enough? Why do we have these debates about whether climate change occurs or not? Why do we have the debates on the science of whether vaccinations uh, are prevent disease and so on. It, it, he's written a fascinating book, and I would encourage you to come. He may make you mad, but that's okay. We'll see you then. <laughs>